The Athletic. Hello, I'm Ian McIntosh and welcome to the Football Manager Show sponsored by LiveScore. On the show today, can't get the staff. No, me neither. But producer Steve does his best. Oh, hey! Please don't quit, Steve. We're talking coaching staff today. What do they do? What does it all mean? What exactly is a sports scientist? We're off to Spain for live scores more than a score. Who would you manage there? And with a sense of steadily mounting trepidation, we ask TIFO's Joe Devine, what did you learn? So, let's get cracking, eh? Making his debut on the Football Manager Show today, it's Russell Hammond from Sports Interactive. Hiya, Russell. Hi, Ian. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. For anyone who doesn't know you, which it's your first time on the show, it will be most people. What exactly do you do all day? So, I'm the QA lead for one of the gameplay areas within the game. And my day essentially involves testing the areas to make sure that they're working properly. So either running sort of long-term saves to check that everything's working as you'd expect, or trying to break certain areas of the game as well by doing ridiculous things that users would never do, but that we do to make sure it's all working fine. Well, you say that. Yeah, I haven't seen me play. There's a lot of ridiculous things I've done. Um, we're going to talk about staff recruitment, responsibilities, how to manage them. Uh, it's something we've never really got into on the show so far, so I'm really quite excited. But as is swiftly becoming traditional here, I want to start with people who don't want to bother with dealing with staff, people who just want to just, just outsource it without actually paying a big penalty for it. Am I right in thinking if they were to hire a good technical director, they could just delegate all the hiring and firing and, and live their lives without ever considering this sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. If it's not the um, technical director, it will be the director of football that gets involved, but it's mostly the technical director. So yeah, if you've got yourself a good one of those in and you set everything across to him, he'll deal with it all for you. So which attributes would I be looking for if I wanted to hire one of those? Judging staff ability and negotiating are the two big ones. Obviously, judging staff ability, the better that, the better the staff they're going to get in through the door. And negotiating, in theory, will get them to sign a lower contract than you would be able to, or they would do by default. So those are the two big ones when it comes to looking for a technical director. As always with these things, when you outsource them it, and you do it properly, you don't get penalised. The game isn't going to beat up on you for not being completely hands-on. But you will miss opportunities to kind of buff your team, give yourself little advantages that you'll get if you're hands-on. So what are some of those key boosts you can give your team by taking this side of things seriously? It's more sort of tailoring it to your own style and your own specificities um, well said yeah you've got uh, things like the, the play style for example the ai won't look at that as much as a human manager might for when you've got coaches coming in and that sort of brushes off on those on the players as you're going through training it will just basically try and find the best circle for the best hole instead of maybe tailoring it to your own way that you, that you want to get it done. It also, you may well have a better balance on the numbers. So like I, for example, like to have two goalkeeping coaches, two fitness coaches, and then the rest will be too attacking, too defensive, too technical. 
a lot of the time the AI will just hire the best staff that it can get for the role. So it may look at it and say, right, you've got one goalkeeping coach. You only need one goalkeeping coach. And then he's split across two categories. So again, it's it's all about sort of your individual touch and the kind of people that you want to come in and work with. And you may also miss like a, a good name youth ex-player who's coming through that, that you want to hire and have working through your ranks as well. Personality is quite important here, isn't it? Because if I'm right in, in thinking this, the personalities of your coaching staff can often transfer to the players. The coaching staff, a little bit. That's more of the uh, head of youth development is the one where the personality can have a massive impact on the players that come through. So the coach's personality will have a little bit of an impact, but it's more you're telling them what to do. They'll go out and, 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 and train the players to do it. In some areas, the uh, personality will have a big impact on it, though. Like I said, the head of youth development is a big one that, that, again, if you leave it to the technical director, he'll hire and he may not pay as much attention to that as you would. Let's start with assistant managers. Um, mm-hmm. For many people, it's the first decision they make. Everyone has their their sort of their hallowed ideal of, of what an assistant manager is. For me, being quite old, it's Don Howe. You know, <laughs> Bobby Robson's right-hand man, the guy who masterminded Wimbledon's crazy gang victory over Liverpool's culture club. I want a Don Howe. How do I find a good one? What what makes a good assistant manager? First, it depends what you're looking to do with the assistant manager. So if you want to delegate certain responsibilities to him, you need to make sure that he's got good attributes in the areas that you want to delegate. Personally, I like to look for an assistant manager who's got good coaching stats in the areas that I'm looking for, where I want him to come in and sort of do some training, but also has good tactical knowledge and is also a good judge of ability and potential because that's what you like them for. Almost like the Cluffy and Taylor sort of partnership where Taylor's the one that's going out and spotting the players and letting you know how your players are kicking along. Nice. Well, there's a reference point that I can actually get. <laughs> uh, I'm very, very happy with this era. Is that the key? You're looking for the judge of the players, but also the advice that you get through the game? That's what I look for, yeah, because a lot of the advice that you'll get in game, whether you want to be hands-on or whether you want to leave a lot of it to your assistant manager, a lot of the advice either way is going to come directly from him. He'll give you like sort of coaching reports because by default, he's the guy that's set up to, to deliver you all this information. So it's always really useful to make sure that you've got one that, that knows what they're talking about, I find. <laughs> And and that's a really interesting thing as well, because if you really micromanage, you can change the identity of the managers giving you the information in the staff meeting. So if you have got a coach who has blistering judging player potential attributes, then you could actually get him to do the reports instead. Yep, yep. You can change pretty much everything when it comes down to the the reports and and who gives you information. That's all available under the responsibilities section. And yet you can change that all across. And if it's not your um, assistant manager, then what's the point in being there? Like that's his whole existence is to be your right hand man and to be your eyes and your ears. So that's why I like to have that all set to my assistant. All right. The the thing that always comes up is you look at the attributes of the staff and the effect you want is to fill up those little boxes full of stars in the coaching page. How do those two things marry up? So with outfield coaching, well, with with all of the coaching, you've got the five attributes that are key, which will be, if you're looking for, say, an attacking technical coach, it'll be attacking and technical. Obviously, they're the sort of ones that you want to be the highest. But the other three are the impact of the determination, the level of discipline, and the motivating. So all of the stars that you see on as you're assigning the coaches to the categories they're decided by those five factors and if you've got one of those generally speaking below 10 it'll hold you back a bit obviously the higher they all go 
the better it is. But a lot of the time, people have like attacking technical coaches with really high scores and then low on the mental side of things and not understand why it's not getting them the, the four or five stars they'd expect in training. And it will be probably because one or two of the determination level of discipline or motivating are lower than they need to be. That's absolutely fascinating. So you have to be careful then with making the balance between having specialist coaches, like getting your attacking coach with sort of 16, 17 and attacking and picking more generalist coaches, you know, the, the, those guys who have 11 or 12 and everything. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It also depends, obviously, on the size of the club that you're at, because if you're at a big team, you've got a coaching staff of, say, 10, 12 players, uh, 10, 12 staff, you can always afford to have one per category. Whereas when you're lower down the leagues, say if you're doing a journeyman save or if you start sort of, you know, non-league football and want to take someone up through the leagues or say you're like saving a team like Palermo or Bari in Italy, you've got to be able to balance it so that they can cover everything. Because if you've only got six coaches and you've got 10 categories to cover, they're not going to spread out to one each. So it's another one of those where if you're in a limited number, the generous coaches are the, the way forward. All right, uh, let's have a look at the medical department because I've never really got my head around that. Physios and head physios, what's the difference between the two? If I've got no one at all, do I have to get a head physio first and then give them some stuff? Nope, you can do it in any order you want. The head physio is essentially just the guy that will run the reports to you. So if you've got a head physio, they're the person that brings you all the medical information, all the reports, all the injury updates, that sort of thing. If you don't have a head physio, it will just default to one of your normal physios. So yeah, the head physio is just basically the, the the title for the person that will come in and give you the reports, that sort of thing. They're also, in theory, you'd want them to be your best physio as well. You wouldn't want them to have a 10 and like your physio teams to be like you know, 15, 16, because that, that would be a little odd. But yeah, that's the, the main difference is that they're the guy that will be your, your go-to to the medical department. You're one that will supply you with all the information and the reports. And being a good physio, you know, obviously having high physio stats means that they, they have a better judge of how long players will be out injured or are there any other benefits? No, that, that's pretty much it. They'll be able to tell you how long you'll get a better range on how long the player will be or what their fitness levels are and also how when they turn from a red to an orange injury as well. So when they'll be back in and whether or not they'll be able to, they'll be fit enough to play. Obviously, they'll give you sort of like better fitness tests as well because they'll be higher physio rating. So they'll be able to tell you how close a player is to the edge of either breaking down again or being able to play. Okay. The club doctor, what benefit does that give me? Club doctor is one of the ones that you can't, you don't have any control over. They're more for admin reasons than anything else. Again, they'll be sort of like running the other parts of the medical side of things, talking to you about like the medical staff, that kind of thing. But they are what is a non-selectable. So you can't choose to hire your chief doctor. That is something that is appointed automatically by the game. And then when they retire, a new one is automatically appointed. Gotcha. And sports scientist, this is the one that I want the answer to. What do they do and what makes a good one? So sports scientists, in theory, are the ones that will be able to monitor the injury levels of your players. They will tell you things like fatigue level, how close your know, players are to needing a rest, what their injury susceptibilities are. They give you all of the information that you find, generally speaking, in the medical centre. They'll assess it and then pass it on to the chief doctor who provides you with the information. The better the sports scientists the better the information that you get and the lower the chance of injuries that your players will have. People think that it has a bigger impact than it does. It's not a huge impact, but it is, again, one of the small percentiles that helps you outdo the AI, like be better than the AI. Because if you've got better than sports scientists, 
in theory, should have better injury management and better information regarding the injuries. Of course, it depends massively on your players' attributes as well. If you've got a team of injury-prone players, you're probably in trouble either way. (laughs) But yeah, when it comes to the medical side of things, in terms of controlling injuries, they're probably the most important people. And they're the ones that you want to make sure that you, in my opinion, that you hire first. FM22, the Data Hub's one of the biggest improvements. To get the best out of that, who do you have to hire and what are you looking for? Uh, For the Data Hub itself, it will be any part of it, really. So it will be the physios and the sports scientists both give you sort of information and feedback on that. It's just making sure you've got the best medical team that is available to you and the best physios and the best sports scientists. And they do it for both the senior and the under-19 teams as well. But in terms of, um, because there's loads of match analyzers and performance analysts and things that feed into the data hub, those guys, is it simply a question of uh, the analyzing data stat that you look at? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to the, um, if you mean the performance and the, the, uh, the performance analysts, yeah, they're the ones that are the most important when it comes to analyzing the data, essentially. So depending on what sort of information you're looking for, the analyzing data is the more important of the two stats, but also tactical knowledge comes in and plays a part onto that because you need to understand how the information fits into your data, into your system, into your style. But yeah, ultimately, the key one there is the analysing data. And along with the uh, facilities as well, how good your data facilities are, because you can have the best team in the world, but if they haven't got the facilities, then that's going to be a bit of a problem. (laughs) I rely on scouts very heavily, not least because I'm the Newcastle manager and I need to replace almost every single footballer really you're just looking for judging player ability judging player potential ability or is there more to it than that yeah if you want your scouts to just go out and look at a player those are the two that are the really important ones again it comes down to personal style so for example i like to set my scouts up to cover different areas of the globe and the key factors there for me are adaptability and also what their knowledge of that area is already so if you send a player a staff a scout who's got great Eastern European knowledge to South America, they're going to take a bit of time to find their feet. Whereas if you send a South American scout or a scout with good South American knowledge down to South America, they're going to be able to hit the ground running and give you the information straight away. The key ones for scouts, generally speaking, will be the judging player ability and judging player potential. They're the two that are the higher those, the better report you're going to get, the more information, the more accurate the score. So if I wanted to sort of build up a huge network of scouts, but I couldn't necessarily get the right ones for the right country, I could actually just get some decent scouts with high adaptability and then sort of ping them around the planet into the places I needed them. And then, what, a year down the line, they'd they'd be really good at it? Yeah, yeah. Depending again on their sort of individual stats and and, and what they're watching, if they're watching a specific league uh, or if they're watching the whole nation or the whole continent. Yeah, those will go up. But it would just obviously take a little bit of time because they'll need to build up that knowledge first. So, yeah, it's, it's a personal call as to whether you want that information straight to hand or whether you want them to have the time to build up but go for someone with slightly better attributes. Right, the final positions to just pick up here are loan managers and recruitment analysts. Um, they're relatively new. What do they do? The loan manager is essentially the person that will provide you with information on how your players are doing out on loan. They'll give you the feedback and the information, the reports that you get presented uh, at the end of every month. Another thing they'll do that people either don't appreciate or, or take a bit for granted is they will take on the challenge of speaking to the players or the managers if they are unhappy with an aspect of the loan so if a player is being played out of position you can ask your loan manager to give them to have a chat with them you can ask the loan manager to talk to the player as well and that's why with the loan manager the people management uh, attribute is an important one as well 
again it depends how hands-on you want to be like i like to keep track of my youngsters when they're out on loan and you know make sure they're being played properly and make sure they're playing in the right position so i'm quite hands-on with that but if it's not something people care about because they've got a bunch of you know reserve players out on loan that they don't care about the development that's the one where the loan manager can come in and have a chat with them and just deal with all of that boring interaction or the interaction that, that you don't like themselves and the recruitment analysts are essentially ones that will provide you with the data from the players that you're scouting. So again, analyzing data is pretty much the, the important one here. Judging player ability can also have an impact because that'll let you know how good they are with the numbers. But the analyzing data is an important one so that you can get a breakdown on the report card of the player that you're scouting in terms of all their stats and attributes throughout the season. Now, of course, the thing that, that comes up frequently is, is the question of whether or not you should listen to all of this advice. Um, so in my Newcastle save, I've been told that I no longer need to teach Joe Linton how to score goals because his finishing of, uh, of 13 is already high enough. That's a court-martial offence, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it could probably be slightly worded in a different way. What that essentially means is they don't think he's going to get any better at finishing. <laughs> they, they may very well have a point there. <laughs> Based on what we've seen, you, you tend to sort of agree with them. You think, oh, in this case, you might know what you're talking about. But yeah, that's essentially that's what they're doing there. They're saying, look, we can keep training this guy in, in this, but we don't think he's going to get any better. We think that that's going to be the end of his, of his training. Like anything else he's going to do, he's not going to get any better at. Okay, well, that's good. I'll, uh, I'll let Graham Jones out of uh, the St. James's Park dungeon. Um, <laughs> I guess finally, like, how much can all of this make a difference? What kind of effect can it have on your team, the difference between just outsourcing it and delegating it and someone who's who's really going deep on their save, trying to do everything, trying to maximise everything. What What's the, the level of difference you can get? It varies from area to area. So some of the things that we've touched on today, they, they have a sort of minor impact, like the scout, for example, is how good you're going to find the players. Like that's sort of a you thing. You might miss out on the next wonder kid because you've not got your scouting set up properly. But things like coaching, for example, to me is very important because that is the way that your players improve so you want the best coaching team with the most gold stars showing on the coaching section so that you can get your players to improve as quickly as possible and become better players that you can either then conquer the world with or sell on to get the next young star in it varies depending on the area i personally would say that the the coaching one is the one that has the most impact that's the one that if you were going to focus on one area of staff within the game that would be the one that's worth paying the most attention to it can give you an uplift like everything within this game. It's all about the minor details and then adding them all up. So it's one of many cogs that form the giant machine. So again, if you just focus on the one area, it might have a small impact. But if you're focusing on all of the areas, like making all of the adjustables, you know, setting up your own set pieces, coaching your players, setting up their training properly, setting up their individual training, it can all have a, a bigger overall impact on, on your game world and on your save and your team. Russell Hammond from Sports Interactive, thank you so much for joining us. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. It's more than a score. It's live score. So, what's all this about then? Well, with LiveScore, which I know you've already downloaded for free from the App Store or Google Play, you get LiveScore updates from around the world. But we know with football, it goes beyond scores. It's the stories from the pitch and the stands. Players and fans all spinning their own strands of the mighty football web that links us all together. And there's no better way to twang that web than by playing Football Manager. So, uh, so basically, it's a guide to exciting new saves. And where is more exciting than La Coruña in Spain, Alvaro Romeo of the Totally Football Show? Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for coming on. 
Yeah, my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk about the Spanish football. <laughs> well, we've got a lot to talk about here because Deportivo are, I mean, they're an extraordinary story. In the mid-90s, they suddenly took off and started to dominate Spanish football in a way that seems utterly impossible now. What happened? I think that it was just a conjunction of uh, factors. Uh, number one, it was possible to um, rocket uh, high up and improve your trajectory a lot in the past. Now it's much more difficult because you just needed like three or four very shrewd signings that no one had ever thought of to become one of the good sides. And that's exactly what Deportivo de la Coruña did. They signed especially two Brazilians, Bebeto and Mauro Silva, who played with the, for the Brazilian national team, who won the World Cup in 1994, being instrumental to the team. Those players, all together with a bunch, a core of uh, very good Spanish players, just made Deportivo de la Coruña become the second best team in Spain for a little while, maybe for three or four years. Uh, let's don't forget and Real Madrid at that time. They were finishing third on the table, sometimes fourth. And Deportivo de la Coruña suddenly... From 1993 onwards, started fighting for Barcelona for La Liga title. Which they eventually won. They were regulars in the Champions League. And then through the noughties, they started to decline, but not that much. You know, they bounded about in mid-table. But then it all went wrong. What happened? Well, obviously, there was a gradual decline in the team throughout uh, 2006 until 2017, 2018, sorry, which is when they went down to the Segunda División. It was just a, a matter of uh, doing bad uh, investments. At the same time, uh, maybe Deportivo de la Coruña did not find a manager uh, who was more than a manager, a person who would actually absorb everything, all the responsibility, and take Deportivo in the right direction. Let's not forget that uh, there are two good Deportivo de la Coruña in the early 90s with Arsenio Iglesias, in the early 2000s with Javo Irureta, and Deportivo de la Coruña didn't uh, find these paternal figures again, uh, no one who could actually uh, make the team as good as they were, or at least no one who could make the team have an identity. And yeah, a number of bad decisions, uh, probably on and off the pitch, uh, sent Deportivo down to Segunda División. What uh, no one could have expected is that Deportivo de la Coruña would be relegated again. That was the biggest disaster for Deportivo de la Coruña because it looked like it was a one-off for them. They went to the Second División, they, but they would bounce back like Villarreal did in the early uh, 2010s. But Deportivo didn't. Deportivo went down again. So we now have a third division in Spanish football. Deportivo are there. Let's talk about the positives. They, they've still got a sort of 44,000, 45,000-seater stadium, haven't they? Yes, they do, in Riazor. And they've got a very loyal fan base. This fan base that uh, grew with Deportivo de la Coruña, many kids that uh, when they were 10, 12, 15 years old, they saw their team winning La Liga, they saw their team winning a Copa del Rey, and they two Copa del Rey, in fact, and uh, they want uh, to support the team that they always supported. So this is a thing that obviously has a big culture behind, a big fan base behind, and the whole city of La Coruña, or a big part of the city of La Coruña, supports Deportivo. Still, the attendances are pretty decent at Riazor, and they've got, uh, as I said before, a, a loyal fan base that uh, actually they've been, I would say, like uh, showing um, unconditional support for the team, even though sometimes the team didn't enliven anything or didn't transmit anything to the supporters. And what, have they got any decent players left or are we down to bare bones of kids and journeymen? It's a bit of that, really. It's a bit of that. They've got some players who, who played in Primera División. For example, Bergantinos. I mean, he, 
He's the captain and uh, he played in Primera for a number of years. The Venezuelan uh, player Miku has been there too. Uh, he was playing in Primera División. But generally speaking, it's a mix of, uh, of players who are young and they are, they are eager to improve their careers and to get somewhere uh, in their careers and very, very veteran players who are safe uh, that are instrumental if you want to get promoted from those divisions so yeah it's a funny mix in there i still believe that deportivo de la coruña this year they are going to make it because they are topping that group and hopefully they will be in primera division very soon for those who don't know tell us a bit about la coruña it's, it's galicia on the north coast isn't it it is Galicia, yeah. Uh, Galicia is a rather Celtic area uh, when it comes to culture. It's a very rainy place. It's kind of a mid-sized city in Spanish standards. The quality of life over there is quite good. I would say that uh, they got like a, a beautiful setup uh, as well over there with the sea, with the beach. It's quite a nice place, actually. But yes, I would say that La Coruña is one of these uh, iconic, nice places, quite picturesque. It's worth visiting. It's basically what the city from the north of Spain looks like, majoritary. What, what sort of local delicacies do you get there? You have to eat seafood, the so-called marisco. If you want to, to be more specific or you want to go for something very particular from there, I will eat octopus in the Galician way. Uh, they call it uh, pulpo a la gallega. And it's a very beautiful, uh, fantastic way of eating octopus, a very natural way with a bit of salt, with a bit of uh, a red paprika powder on top, and it's beautiful. But the seafood in Galicia is one of the best seafoods in the world, for sure. You have to eat it there. All right. I don't know if I'm going to manage them or I just want to go there and eat some food, but I'm, you have my <laughs> full attention. Uh, Alvaro, thank you so much. You're on the Totally Football Euro show every week, aren't you? I am, yeah, I am. And uh, this week it's been very intense and very, very nice because we've been talking about the Champions League uh, coming up tonight. And uh, honestly, uh, it's looking like uh, it's going to be a beautiful night tonight of football. Excellent, excellent. So if you want to listen to that, uh, just follow the feed for the Totally Football Show because the Euro Show is out once a week there. Rafa Honigstein's there, James Horncastle's there, Julian Laurent's there. It's a fantastic show. Alvaro, thank you so much. Thanks to you guys. That was It's More Than a Score with Live Score. You can get real-time updates and results, match highlights and breaking news from around the football world on the Live Score app, and it's completely free. Just search for it on the App Store or Google Play now. Right, it's that part of the show where I talk about subscriptions to The Athletic. Uh, I won't do the big salesy thing because you know how good it is. You know it's the best writers writing the best stuff. But what you might not know is that to celebrate Black Friday, you can now take advantage of the best deal of the year. Without a shadow of a doubt, this is for new subscribers only. You can subscribe to The Athletic for £1 a month for a full 12 months. If you go to theathletic.com forward slash FM pod, this offer will run out at midnight Sunday, November 28th. And it's such a ridiculous offer. I'm fairly sure they'll never repeat it again. Why would they? It's 25p a week. That's like 3p a day, 4p a day. My maths deserts me at times. That's nothing at all. You really should take it. It's great analysis, it's in-depth features from the very best footballers around and you can listen to ad-free versions of things like the Totally Football Show if you listen on the app. So go to theathletic.com forward slash fmpod for new subscribers, £1 a month for a full 12 months. I'll trade you this baseball for your souvenir bet. Sure. <laughs> what did you learn? 
Right, we are joined today by TIFO's big cheese, Joe <laughs> Devine, a man who actually recently didn't really enjoy Football Manager, but upon release of FM22 has suddenly gone headlong into it. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ian. And also, I do love cheese, particularly big cheese. Big cheese is the best cheese, as far as I'm concerned. Some people obsess about small cheese. Not for me. Not for me. What changed? Because you had some quite strong opinions on Football Manager and then all of a sudden you're a season deep into it. I don't know. I sort of, you know, obviously at TIFO we spend a lot of time talking about football and I thought I really needed to throw myself into it a little bit more. I'm very outclassed by uh, my colleagues Alex Stewart, JJ Bolt, Seb Stafford-Bloor who all know heaps and heaps about football in comparison uh, to myself I know very little. So I figured if I could play football manager and enjoy it it might also help me learn a little bit more about the sport that I purport to talk about on a daily basis. And the thing that I learned through listening to the TIFO football podcast is that you you find the very idea of putting your own name in and being a manager in the game to be quite preposterous. I think it's egomaniacal. I don't know. I can't imagine anyone that would do that. It turns out everyone does that. So clearly I'm the outlier here. But I find the very idea of trying to replicate yourself in a virtual world, A, insane, and B, lacks real imagination, doesn't it? You have the opportunity to create anyone that you want, and you just try to recreate yourself, someone whose faults you know all of and you probably dislike. <laughs> so you, you took over Manchester United with whom? Well, I didn't take over Manchester United. That's not the, 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 the prefix I like to use. Uh, Dr. Richter took over Manchester United. First name, Dr., Unfortunately, the prefix wasn't wasn't selectable, <laughs> and a surname Richter. But what, what's his real first name, or, or is this nominative determinism in action? One would never know. I mean, he spent many many years um, studying medicine, and uh, his dedication to it was such that uh, he replaced his original first name with Doctor. I think that's just showing commitment to the cause. What what did he bring to Manchester United in terms of managerial style? Well, he really has a great knowledge of medicine. So uh, I'm glad to say that our first season, we suffered uh, 40% fewer injuries than the previous season, according to assistant manager Mike Phelan. But beyond that, he has a rather meticulous approach to uh, delegating almost everything uh, to people who are better than him. A bit like, uh, you know, there's been lots of talk around Steven Gerrard, who's recently taken the Aston Villa role. And one of the, uh, the compliments of his managerial style is that he is aware of his strengths and weaknesses and, uh, again, delegates the things, uh, lots of things. To, uh, to his assistant, Beal. So I've tried to take that same approach with Dr. Richter, who's hired several very, very good coaches and uh, asked them to do almost everything. And how did that go? Once you got over the hump of, you know, pre-season and all, all the delegation, how did the season unfold? Pretty smooth. It was pretty smooth. I was top at Christmas with Manchester United in the Premier League, which I was, uh, I was very pleased about. It felt quite easy at the beginning. And when I first started playing, I think I told you before, Ian, my, my top scorer after seven games was uh, Rafa Varane, my centre-back, with seven goals before I assumed they fixed whatever heading uh, bug that was or made some, <laughs> made some alterations. <laughs> Were you doing near post-corners by any chance? I wasn't. I don't know what Mike Phelan was doing, but he was doing something good because uh, we were scoring a lot of goals from headers. And then Liverpool, who appear just to not lose any games in the game, much like in real life, sort of overtook me steadily and uh, then the gap grew and grew and grew. Eventually I finished third in the Premier League in my first season. I did make it all the way to the final of the Champions League and I have to tell you, it was quite an exciting journey. In the quarterfinals I met Borussia Dortmund, a 3-1 loss away in the first leg 
I changed my style at this point. I'd lost a few games on the bounce. I thought maybe the AI had caught up with me. And so I downloaded a new tactic from online and uh, implemented that about three days before that game. I smashed them 5-1. The new tactic, Ian, was a 4-4-2 with a you know, very sort of a heavy pressing, uh, a, a huge amount of intensity and a little bit less holding onto the ball than I was doing before. But yeah, we brought them back to Old Trafford 1-5-1. I beat Barcelona six-one uh, in the uh, in the second leg semi-final, and uh, we met PSG in the final where we went one nil up before sadly succumbing for the rest of the game and eventually losing two-one. But it was quite a fun run. Was that because of the fatigue problem that you get when you you play intense pressing? I mean, probably. Yeah, it could have been any number of things. Really, I don't really know how to play the game. So, <laughs> one of the things I did learn about it was um, when something went wrong. I wasn't really sure why. I see, I see. And how did you get around that? Or did you, in fact, just plough on regardless with a, a sense of sailor V? No, exactly. I just ploughed on. Every time things sort of stopped going well for a few games, I had to change the tactic. And uh, it seemed to work. You know, you get that little short-term bounce off the back of it. But I don't know, I got dogged down during the season with players either kind of being seemingly unhappy despite the fact that the dressing room morale was at an all-time high and my manager support was very good players being unhappy with their contracts players wanting more playing time and I felt there was a real lack of options in terms of what I could say to them now perhaps not for a normal person who just wants to enjoy the game but when Victor Lindelof comes to you and tells you that he's not getting his preferred playing time uh, I really wish the option was there to say fuck off and leave me alone In real life, you are a, a leader of men and women in the ever-sprawling TIFO empire. Are there any lessons you've learned from real life that you were using in the game and the way that you conduct yourself and, and manage other people? Absolutely. I mean, I was mocking before the limited number of responses, but I think in my real life and career, I could probably use a bit more uh, restriction in terms of what I end up inevitably saying to people who work for me. It would make my life uh, better and their life better. Well, that's perfect. That's that's what we've learned. Did you sign anyone along the way? Any new signings that we can tip to people? I signed a few people. I signed Frank Kessie immediately because uh, Alex Stewart, my colleague, talks about him all the time. And also I'm aware that Manchester United, they really just need a defensive midfielder, right? Turns out in the game, they're already really, really good. I don't know what's happening in real life, but uh, in the game, they're, they're very, very good for obvious reasons. So I I bought Frank Kessie and I, I changed my system to to a four three three and accommodated him in that in that defensive midfielder role. It also it turns out Scott McTominay, uh, who trains at like a rating ten every week, maybe unsurprisingly, uh, is also pretty good there too. Um, although you know I don't know if that is that part specifically is quite that reflective of real life. Beyond that, I didn't really have any money uh, to spend beyond that in the first season because obviously before Dr. Richter took the role, the club had already signed Jaden Sancho and Cristiano Ronaldo and Rafa Varane, so I think they were a bit spent. But I've just reached my, uh, my, my second summer in charge. I've bought a few players now. I bought Luca Romero, who is one of the wonder kids from Lazio. I accidentally set him to sign for 2023, though, so I spent £30 million and don't have him yet. I also bought Ollie Skip from Tottenham because since I've changed my system to that 4-4-2, I'm looking for someone who can be a DM but also quite a good uh, central midfielder too. He was fairly expensive, about £45 million. One running theme for me with the transfers there, Ian, was that when I spent money, the board were often very unhappy <laughs> with how I did that. That sounds like the Glazers. 
Yeah, uh, they were uh, every time I got my manager feedback or my monthly review, it would be uh, a C minus. Uh, they were very happy with the results on the pitch, extremely unhappy with the financials included in the uh, the loaning out of uh, Xavi Simmons, who I also bought from PSG. I think I could use a little improvement in the economic aspect of the game. That is Dr. Richter, otherwise known as Joe Devine. Joe, what's what's on TIFO this week that's good? We've got a lovely guide to 442 being released on Friday, which is uh, broad and exciting. We've got a piece on Kepa Aritha Balaya, you know, the uh, the Chelsea goalkeeper who was bought for £70 million a few years ago and just, just hasn't quite worked out. And also something very exciting coming up Friday the 3rd of December, written by David Goldblatt himself. It is uh, the story of uh, football's first ever match the earliest ever recorded history of that which uh, is a story that i very much love from the mesoamerican myths Ooh, well we'll definitely have a look at that joe devine thank you for coming on thank you ian It's time for your letters. You know how to get in touch with us. It's iMacintosh at theathletic.com or Ian underscore games on Twitter. Producer Steve, you haven't quit. No, still here. Still here. I was thinking about it. Was thinking about it. Thank God for that. Thought we were looking for producer number four there. <laughs> We've got a lot of letters, so we're gonna we're gonna rush through. The first one is from Dan Taken, and I'm so sorry to Dan. He sent me a copy of his book about eight weeks ago, and I swear to God, the last like eight Wednesdays, I've come in on the bus thinking, oh, gotta mention Dan's book, and I've forgotten every time. So it's Dare to Derek. It's available on Amazon. It's an epic tale of one manager in FM17. It's really really great. Definitely have a look for it. Uh, Dan is doing the Pentagon Challenge. Now, do you remember what the Pentagon Challenge is, producer Steve? I do not. No, I'm guessing it's not to do with some sort of like ritual. (laughs) I could not remember all the details. So for anyone who's forgotten, this is one of the classic FM challenges. You have to win the Asian Football Confederation Championship, the Confederation of African Football Championship, the Confederation of North, Central American and Caribbean Association Football Champions League, CONCACAF. You have to win the Copa Libertadores and you have to win the Champions League all under the same save. And that is a save that you started unemployed without any coaching badges. You may not manage international teams like, you know, England, Germany, etc. You cannot use the in-game editor and you should mask players' attributes. So if you want to make new signings, you have to scout them thoroughly. It's ludicrously difficult. Dan is on his way. He started off desperately trying to get jobs in African and Asian countries to try and do that bit of the puzzle first, but he really struggled to get appointed by anyone. He's now got a job at Chester, where he's really struggled to get Chester to let him do his coaching badges. So basically, he's asking about reputational increase, because when he did get his C licence, the reputation bar on his manager profile went from 5 to 15%. So his question is, is the reputation bar solely increased by the gaining of coaching qualifications? Or does that only take it so far and trophy wins top up the rest? He's knocked Vanarama national sides, even a League Two club side out of the FA Cup this season. Pretty good for Chester. But that 15% still hasn't gone up. So what, what do you have to do to get that bar up? Steve, we asked Sports Interactive and they said? They have said that reputation is based on a number of factors in-game. But yes, elements that play a part of it do include coaching qualifications, competition success, personal awards uh, as a couple of examples. However, the way it adds up is a bit of a slow burner. 
cup shocks would only have a tiny effect compared to, say, tangible successes like cup wins or promotions, for example, which are calculated throughout the season. The biggest recalculation normally happens on season update day. So that's when you're presented with the in-game leaderboard and when the fixtures for the following season are generated. So I think the answer, Dan, is it's a bit of a slow burn and a bit of patience as with anything on this game. So I hope that helps a little bit. Next up, we have Joe Peters and he has a question about loans. So Joe asks, do players consider a club's training facilities, playing time, professional status and playing level when the manager accepts loans from multiple teams? Joe continues to say, I want to just accept all loan offers and let the player decide which club is best for them instead of me taking the time to scout each club. So what did Sports Interactive say about this one, Ian? They said for loans, players will normally lean towards a combination of first team playing time and the you know general standard reputation of a club. But some players may overestimate their own ability and they'll join a club offering only, say, squad player over first team regular as they believe in themselves more than the signing club do. So if you're closely guarding the development of a player, do definitely manage the situation. Not unsurprisingly, a club with great facilities and coaches may be the better long-term choice for a player's development than a club that's successful but mainly off the back of flashy signings but don't expect the player to always know that sound advice there what else we got steve so chris cassens has been in touch again and if you remember a few episodes back they were asking for throw-in tips which we then discussed on last week's episode, which of course you can find a bit further back on the feed. Chris writes in to say thank you very much to Kern Van Verden for their throw-in advice. Both pieces of advice have worked really well. This is obviously Kern's advice and the advice you gave yourself, Ian, last week. So, as it happens, Chris's long thrower is a decent passer if he has time and space, and the Cruyff routine creates exactly that. So last weekend, I started rotating the long and short throw routines, and it's really hard to defend. The AI is sometimes able to shut down one routine, but that just opens up more opportunities for the other. So, yet another happy customer. Excellent. We got any more happy customers in there? Seth Harnisfeger has written in to say, I decided to manage FC Eindhoven in FM22, who are a second tier team in the Netherlands. And I was scoreless in my first three games, losing all three 1-0. I created an in-swinging far post corner routine and stuck the six foot five centre-back Gies van Otterdijk from the reserve squad straight into my lineup and put him at the far post. You wouldn't believe it. The first corner we got in the next game, he towers over everyone and nods it in. Bloody would believe it. There you go. Well, you know, because you do it all the time, don't you? Absolutely. So we held on to win 1-0 after, and wait for it, after I installed your spit. Spit. Spithousery, inspired tactics <laughs> late in the second half. Your ideas from the pod are literally the only reason I have any points so far this season. Jesus, that's a searing indictment, isn't it? <laughs> no, I'm delighted, Seth. I'm absolutely delighted. Uh, all, all, all power to your set pieces, sir. Who else we got? Kahuna Gaming has written in to inquire about doing the classic Build-A-Nation save, especially due to the dynamic youth rating this year as a factor that might have changed and fundamentally wants to know how it all works. Okay, so the Build-A-Nation save, I mean, there's loads of different ways you can do it, but fundamentally it is about taking a nation and making them better and more successful. One way that people do it is to combine a club managerial career with an international managerial career because of the dynamic adaption to youth rating that's really been improved this year. So essentially, it means if you think that maybe Scotland aren't as good internationally as they could be, 
and you took over a Scottish team and you made them really, really good and you started winning European competitions, the game should kind of get a read out of that and start generating better Scottish players, which would then help you with your other job, which is managing Scotland. So we did talk to Sports Interactive about this. Uh, they said there are lots of factors regarding each nation standing in the world of football, which can have an effect here. But any changes will tend to be very, very gradual, as well as being dependent on the nation's ability to improve their infrastructure. So that last bit sounds like it's it's quite key. But as with everything, the more success you have, the more sort of dynamic effects you get with all of that. We've got time for one more, haven't we? Yes, we do. And it's going to come from Jamie Cook. And they write in to say, I had a quick question for you. I watched the Football Manager documentary on Amazon Prime last month and I was stunned when in the closing credits, the guy playing the guitar sang a song with my full name on it. Uh, in it, sorry. And that's Jamie Cook who wrote this letter. I'd imagine this was some sort of clever personalization or recording of thousands of versions that plugs into your Amazon data, which is a terrifying thought, <laughs> as a side note. But from friends looking at it as well, they're hearing the same name. Is this just a very weird coincidence? Do you have any knowledge or background as to why they picked the name Jamie Cook? If so, now, of course, you were in this documentary, weren't you, Ian? I was a lot younger and a lot thinner, (laughs) (laughs) no grey hair. And also, uh, because I I had a quick check on this, because the the whole film is on YouTube, so go and watch it. It's really, really good. Just before I left to go and shoot my bits in in a pub in Archway, um, my daughter, who was, I think she was only about two then, she grabbed my T-shirt and then just hung off it. So throughout the entire film, because it was too late for me to do anything, my T-shirt looks like it's dangling off me dangling off my very very skinny body it's a great film do have a a look at it at the end of the film it is a coincidence jamie the musician gavin osborne who's brilliant wrote a song about signing jamie cook from oxford on a version years and years ago the song's fantastic and we can play a bit of it for you right now oh jamie cook would you take a look at what you've done to my heart Always a reason for the change of seasons, but now my team has fallen apart. That is brilliant. As I say, it's all there on YouTube. Just look for Football Manager Documentary and you'll find it. If you want to send us a letter about anything, could be a question, could just be that you're bragging about something. We are at home to both. It's imacintosh at theathletic.com and you can find me on Twitter, Ian with two eyes underscore games. And that was the Football Manager Show, sponsored by LiveScore. Your guests were Russell Hammond of Sports Interactive, Alvaro Romeo from the Totally Football Show, Joe Devine off the TIFO. Your producer was Steve Hankey, and I'm a slightly older version of last week's Ian McIntosh. The Athletic.